0: This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family wealth and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more.
1: We saw obviously the tech index and tech stocks sell off a lot. That's happening to those private sector companies too, where they're starting to burn cash and burn through those deposits. So Everything I described was kind of magnified and exacerbated for the banks that we've seen fail so far.
0: show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids & Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we're going to do two different things. First, we're going to be having a discussion around why banks are failing lately with our regular guest, Megan Rebus, a.k.a. the family finance mom. And second, we are back with our internet money segment. On this segment, we like to talk about how people are blowing it up on the internet, making some good money for themselves, whether it's a side hustle or a full-time business or just a part-time thing to bring in some money. This quarter, we're gonna be featuring a couple named James and Emily Lowry, who manage Airbnbs remotely while traveling the world. They're gonna show us how they do this, how much money they make, and how little they work, (laughs) and how you can get started too. All right, let's jump into today's show. With multiple high profile banks failing as of late, a lot of people are wondering, is my bank going to fail? Or more importantly, is my money safe? Big questions like these are always better with really smart friends, so I thought I'd answer this one with my friend Megan Rebus once again. Megan, also known as the Family Finance Mom, is the host of the popular Finance Explained podcast. Megan is a former financial analyst, a mom of three, and a regular guest expert to the Marriage, Kids & Money community. Welcome back to the show, Megan.
1: Thanks, Andy, thanks for the warm introduction.
0: Of course. Well, it's so good to see you again. And I know you're a busy PTO co-president, so I got to get you back to work. Let's talk about these important things and then get you back to the reality of life. So Megan, why are these banks failing in the first place?
1: Maybe, you know, banks are kind of a foreign concept to some people in terms of how they work behind the scenes. You know, we go and put our money there, but then what happens to it after that? And so I think you kind of need to understand the basics of how a bank operates before we can then talk about why banks fail. So let's think back to the last couple of years where people were getting big stimulus checks from the government, they were getting expanded unemployment benefits, and in aggregate, disposable income across the country for people was higher than normal, savings rates were higher than normal. And so because of that, you had big growth in bank deposits. And when I'm kind of giving you this data, I'm talking kind of economy-wide. So across all banks, they saw significant growth in deposits. At the same time, when banks get your deposits, the way a bank makes money is by taking your deposits and loaning it out at higher rates than what they pay you on your savings account. And then their profit, the money that they make and then use to run the bank is known as the spread. It's the difference between what they pay you in interest on your savings account and what they can loan that money out and earn. Now, here's the problem. The same time that deposits were increasing really rapidly and all of us, our savings rates were really high, what were interest rates in the economy then? they were extremely low, right? Mortgage rates were at all time record lows, 3%, you know, 4%. Interest rates on bonds were extremely low. And so banks put all that money to work at near record low interest rates. Now, fast forward, what has happened over the last year? Inflation got out of control. The Fed had to hike interest rates in order to combat inflation. But the banks already lent all that money out and locked themselves into earning interest rates that were much lower. And so what has also happened with inflation is that people have reduced their savings rates because they need to take out from their savings account in order to fund their everyday spending to keep pace with inflation or because interest rates are higher, they have more attractive options other than leaving their money sitting in a savings account. They can go out and buy bonds themselves at higher interest rates, for example. And so at kind of the worst possible market timing, people's deposits are not only not growing, bank deposits are shrinking, and in order to fund those withdrawals to customers, the banks have to sell the assets that they invested in. And when they sell those assets at current market rates, they're losing cents on the dollar. The money that they were able to invest in treasury bonds when treasury bonds were paying 2% to sell them today, they're not going to get, you know, 100 cents on their dollar. They're having to sell them for 70 or 80 cents on the dollar, you know, in the best case scenario. And so what happens is, is that really weakens a bank's balance sheet. And when that bank balance sheet gets weakened as they start to report that in the open market, whether it's during earnings season or whether it's because regulators give them a heads up and say, hey, like your balance sheet is in trouble and we're giving you 48 hours to make an announcement yourself or we're going to do it for you, which is kind of what happened in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, that sparks a run on the bank. It makes the bank's depositors concerned like, oh, hey, I may not be able to get all my money out. And so it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So in, you know, a very condensed version, that is essentially what is happening in the world right now and for banks right now. I want to be clear, like all banks are facing similar pressures in terms of rising interest rates and potentially having a mismatch in, I guess the best way to describe it is duration. So how long deposits are sitting and staying in place relative to, how they invested those assets. You know, Did they invest them in 10-year bonds and 30-year mortgages, or did they invest them in six-month treasury bonds where they're a little more liquid and they're going to have you know, less of a write-down as interest rates rise? Really large banks that are very well-established tend to be more diversified, both in terms of their deposit base as well as the things that they invest in. And presumably, they have really smart people who are also kind of hedging them against these moves in interest rates. And I think what you saw happen in particular in the banks that have failed so far, there were additional risks like a concentrated customer base. So in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, you had a very, very concentrated customer base serving the, you know, venture capital and high-tech firms. And so, All the things I described about growth and deposit rates were almost exacerbated to even kind of bubble levels where venture capitalists, when money was really cheap, had a lot of money to put to work. And so those companies got infused with a lot of cash during, call it like the 2020 era. And then as times got harder, we saw obviously the tech index and tech stocks sell off a lot. That's happening to those private sector companies too, where they're starting to burn cash And burn through those deposits so everything i described was kind of magnified and exacerbated for the banks that we've seen fail so far so let me pause there and give you a chance to kind of digest and if you have further questions there but hopefully that makes sense
0: i love the explanation it's very helpful as always that's why i keep inviting you back the question that i have that follows that then is What happens when a bank fails? How does that affect the economy? And then further from that, how does that affect everyday people like me and you?
1: So let me take the economy one first. When you have kind of a single bank failure, let's take, you know, when first Silicon Valley Bank comes out and they are in trouble, a lot of people, I think, and rightfully so, in many instances, said, hey, this is an isolated incident because of concentrated customer base because of poor management, poor risk management. I know in one of kind of the data points that came out, like their risk management role was actually empty for like the last 18 months of the bank's operation. So there were definitely like operational failures isolated and specific to that bank. But now we've had more and now there are more regional banks that are, you know, selling off 30 and 40 percent in a single day because people are worried of about what is kind of known as contagion. And it's kind of like almost shark smelling blood in the water where people are, they don't want to be caught with their bank failure and their deposits tied up and not being able to get those out. And so what happens is that banks, in order to guard against that, start to tighten credit. So what does tighten credit mean? It means that they get much more strict about who they are willing to loan money to And at what rate and for how long. And so it's going to make credit more expensive, harder to get. And actually, you saw yesterday, and not to get too technical, but in the FOMC statement from the Fed and the subsequent press conference where they talked about raising interest rates, you've heard them mention this as well that credit is tightening which is actually also helping them in reducing inflation. Because if it's harder to borrow money, there's less money in circulation, less money for people to spend, and that's going to help cool off demand and cool off inflation too. So that's kind of the big picture, like what is the economic impact of this across the economy?
0: So macroeconomically, this is... Kind of a good thing.
1: Kind of a good thing. Yeah. You know, it's it doesn't feel so good if you're a small business owner trying to take out a loan. It doesn't feel so good if you're a first time homebuyer who's been saving trying to buy your first home and now you need a higher credit rate or you're going to have to pay a higher interest rate even if you have a higher credit rate. But in the big picture, grand scheme of things, it's actually not the worst thing for the economy because it is helping us kind of correct this inflationary struggle that we've been battling. Now, at the individual level, and I think this is really important for people to understand, and this dates back to legislation that was put in place during the Great Depression back in the 1930s when there were a series of runs on banks where literally the federal government shut down all the banks in the country to be able to review them individually and say, this one's safe, this one's not. They created something known as FDIC insurance. It is federal deposit insurance that is banks pay premiums into FDIC protection. And in the event that a bank fails, every depositor, and this is by depositor name, so associated with your social security number. So if you're a small business, you are accounted for separately than if you had like a personal account. Every depositor at a bank is insured up to $250,000. So in the event that you were at a bank that failed, what happens is state regulators come in, they close the bank, they turn it over to the FDIC to run and operate, and the FDIC makes good, makes sure that you are whole on your deposits up to $250,000. So that number is really important to understand. And for everyday individual people, they may think like, well, that seems like a whole lot of money. My money is gonna be safe anywhere. But think a little bigger than that in terms of like, if you're a smaller, medium-sized business owner, biweekly payroll could be more than $250,000. And so as you get to a little bit higher net worth, as you get to you know, a smaller or a little bit bigger business, that limit can be a little concerning. So it is important to understand like, is my bank healthy? Is my bank safe? Especially if you're managing assets that start to kind of exceed those limits.
0: Well, let's talk to the person who's listening right now and maybe they're at a regional bank and they're thinking, I'm going to pull my assets and go to a bigger, more solidified bank. What would you say to that person?
1: I don't fault them for feeling that way. I think I want to be very fair and clear in that not all regional banks are going to fail. Right now, there are ETF indices that track regional banks Right now, the KRE is one of the most common ones. It's down about six, seven percent year to date. Look at some of the banks that failed. Those banks were down 60 percent. Like some of the others this week, in the aftermath of First Reserve Bank that got shuttered and taken over by the FD- FDIC and sold to JP Morgan over the weekend. Some of the others that are in trouble are like Pac West, I think, is now down 60 70 percent. You'll notice that a lot of these are on the West Coast and share some of the tech customer concentration risk that Silicon Valley Bank shared as well. Those are some of the ones that people are most concerned about. But when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about what is their share price performance? Because individual investors collectively as a whole are a pretty smart bunch. They're tracking these companies' SEC filings. They're examining their balance sheets. And if their stock is selling off to a significant degree, it's because they have cause for concern. So if you are at a regional bank, pull up their ticker symbol online, type it in. What is their year-to-date stock market performance? Now know this, all banks are facing this rising interest rate risk, this pressure on spreads where they're going to have to pay you more interest. They may have assets that are getting written down because they were invested at lower interest rates. All banks are facing that. But the degree to which they've managed that risk and the impact of that on their individual balance sheet is gonna show in their share price performance. So, and for the people who say, you know what? I don't even wanna worry about it. I just wanna be at a bigger bank. I mean, that's a very real reality right now. And you're seeing that play out in the stock market too. So like the JP Morgans, the Bank of Americas, the Wells Fargo's, there's kind of a handful of like big national banks. All of them are up or even maybe down single digits year to date. Whereas the regional banks are down like 30% year to date. And then the ones that are really struggling are down, you know, their stock prices are, some of them in case at risk of going to zero. Those are the ones where you might want to be like, yeah, I don't think I want to keep my money here anymore.
0: And at the end of the day, if your balances are below that $250,000 mark, know that your money is going to be safe.
1: That's correct. And so in the case of, for example, First Reserve Bank. They were acquired over the weekend by JP Morgan. The FDIC is making guarantees to JP Morgan on certain of kind of their, if you want to call them toxic assets or more risky assets. And so now you're part of JP Morgan. Chase, you know, their retail bank is Chase typically. And so, you know, even if you didn't move your money there, that's where it is now and it's, you know, in good hands. But, you know, those are, I think, the key things as individuals to understand, but also to kind of understand what's going on in the broader economy and why this is happening.
0: Absolutely. Well, Megan, we appreciate your time today talking to us about this. Pretty serious subject about what's going on here in 2023 and beyond. It's good to know how these conversations play out for your personal finances. And I know you do that on the weekly basis over at Family Finance Mom and Finance Explains. So tell people where they can connect with you and learn more from you, just like you helped us learn today. Yes.
1: Yeah, so you can find me every day over on Instagram at Family Finance Mom. Twice a week, I host live Q&A where I take questions directly from individuals and they can be market-related, economics-related, or you know, even just like personal finance that's applicable to you. I do that for about half an hour, twice a week. Those replays you can catch on my podcast, Finance Explained, along with you know, I have guests on on various topics that are kind of in the headlines and relevant to people as well. Come on over and check me out and feel free to ask questions as, as they occur to you.
0: She's an open book, just like we were today, asking her a bunch of pressing questions. So you could do that over on Instagram live. She does them live as well as this great podcast, Finance Explained. Megan, thank you so much for your time today.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks, Sandy.
0: Per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello and use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Telo plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Telo, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up, the code is valid until April 19th, 2024. marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Telo. More and more people want the flexibility to earn money from home or really anywhere they choose. If you're interested in part-time money, side hustles, or full-time money, the internet has the money we are looking for. On our internet money segment today, we're going to interview James and Emily Lowry. This married couple manages Airbnbs remotely while traveling the world together. Today, we're going to learn how they develop their online real estate business and how it affords them more time and more freedom welcome to the show james and emily Go
2: ahead. <laughs> thank you for having us
0: <laughs> yeah thanks for having us absolutely i always love asking that question then people can like say it at the same time which is very confusing so uh, i'm <laughs> glad i'm glad i messed you up already that keeps it light and fresh <laughs> so let's talk about your motivation for investing in real estate in the first place why don't i throw it at uh, emily to, to start us off
2: that sounds good. So it actually started, it was about, I guess, a year after we got married. It was going to be our five year goal that we were going to have kids, and we wanted to be stay at home parents. And we wanted to be able to like focus on them and not have to send them to, you know, daycare, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that was our initial motivation for investing in real estate.
0: I noticed that you guys are still traveling and enjoying yourselves. And James, as this started for you guys, what Got you excited about getting your first place? And then how did you start getting your first place? Talk to us about that
3: process. So, yeah, we found the FIRE movement, which is financial independence, retire early, right? And so I dove headfirst into it. I was obsessed with everything about it. And in the course of that, in the research and everything like that, I started realizing I think that real estate was the fastest path. And so it wasn't, you know, a whole lot of other options as far as like what's going to be the fastest that was really the biggest thing that was weighing on me and there's so much more control with real estate than there is with like the stock market not necessarily entrepreneurship but very similar i can control what goes into a property and i can control how much it rents for based on that i can't control you know what what elon musk tweets or you know what the stocks do so the control definitely played a factor in what we do
0: Yeah, talk to us about that first property then. How did you guys start to tackle that and walk us through that? Because yes, I do realize, having talked to a lot of people who who are on this fire path about the stock market versus real estate, that real estate can definitely provide that income faster than the stock market. So talk to us about how you got that first property.
3: So our first true rental property we looked at and it was in a bad area, it was incredibly cheap. And we pulled up to look at it and thought about not getting out of the car, like we were just going to keep driving. And we didn't one of the units was vacant. So it was a duplex. And so we went in and looked at that one unit, and then just kind of decided like, nah, you know, this isn't really the one for us. And so we kept looking. And a couple months later, we were actually in St. Louis for a work assignment for Emily. We moved to St. Louis for a little bit. And while we were there, I happened to still be looking on the market and saw that this property was still available. And so I told Emily, I'm just going to throw in like an embarrassing offer. And they accepted the first one. And so all of a sudden, I'm interviewing for property managers while we're in the process of closing. So the first property we bought, we actually bought remotely, had to get property managers, had to place a tenant remotely. And then like the first month we placed somebody, and got a check for like I don't know $700 and our mortgage was like in the threes and so I was like we're making like 300 and something dollars this is the easiest thing I've ever done like <laughs> we're pros at this you know and so that helped
0: that's incredible and then Emily as you guys were getting started on this did the idea of long-term rentals versus the short-term rental did that pop up early or is that something you guys started to decide on later on
2: that's something we decided on later on. When we first started, we focused on long-term rentals. And then right before we quit our jobs, we had a vacancy and we didn't want to fill, well, there were two parts. We didn't want to fill a long-term vac- vacancy. And then we didn't want to, we want to make sure that we had a place whenever we came back to visit family, cause we were moving to Europe. And so that's kind of how we got started into short-term rentals.
0: I think I jumped ahead quite a bit there. So you guys were working, and then you had this. Uh, <laughs> no, and it's the reality of what happened with the conversation. You guys are working. You have your jobs, and then how did you jump from we bought the first house to we quit our jobs? Fill in the gap for us there.
2: <laughs> so I guess from from the first rental, we accumulated. So that was two doors. We accumulated eight more doors in I guess two years. Mm-hmm.
3: We lived incredibly frugally and we did anything we could to get properties. And at the time we weren't like creative with the financing. We were just putting 20% down or 25% down on multifamily properties and just getting as many mortgages as we could. Now a key part of this was we told the lender that we used for the like second one, Hey, this is our goal. And so we want to have, you know, 10 doors or 10 properties. We didn't know how it was going to play out. And that actually brought her kind of on our team and she was like strategic. Strategically placing some in Emily's name and some in my name so that we could not hurt our credit as much. And because there are rules when it comes to how many mortgages you can have, we weren't going to hit that limit before we needed to.
0: Was this during the beautiful timeframe of super low interest rates for mortgages?
2: It was relatively low. Yeah. I think because we were investing in like purely investment properties, we had higher mortgages.
3: Yeah. They were typically 1% higher than what the retail one was. So I think our lowest is actually in the fours and our highest is in the sevens. So we kind of run the gambit.
0: With that, I mean, today, if we're looking at investing in real estate, maybe you'd add a percentage point on to a seven or 8% at this point. So it's not too much farther away from where you are. Is that right? Right, exactly. So talk to us about the transition then, you guys are traveling now around the world, you've got these homes and they're mostly concentrated in the Huntsville area, is
3: that correct? That is correct, yes, so pretty much all of our properties, except for two, and they happen to be in a suburb of Huntsville, so they're still in the same area, we get to have the same team and all that.
0: How did you develop that team? Because it sounds like right away, you got the house, you weren't expecting it, and then you just sort of fell into, I gotta start finding some people. So did your search continue after that and you just over time started to nail down the right people to help you do this remote life?
3: Yeah, exactly. So at the beginning, we were actually doing all the work ourselves. I was pretty much the handyman. If it was something that I couldn't do, then at that point we would hire it out. But until that point, I was doing everything. We were painting together. We would spend our Fridays and Saturdays and nights and weekends. And I was going before work and after work, kind of renovating properties. And so at the beginning, we were very much involved. And when we decided, it kind of somewhere along the path, we had decided to try to go to Europe. And so at that point I was like, okay, we need to figure out how we can do this remotely while not having to go and work on the properties. So we gave it like a trial run for like a few months. Let's see if we cannot go to a property and just hire the handyman, send them over, have them meet the tenant, you know, and do everything that way. And if it doesn't fall apart, then it should work here and there.
0: Was that sort of the moment in time where you said, Uh, I think we could do this full-time.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Well, that's incredible. That's incredible. So talk to me about that moment where you were able to let go of the full-time work to make this your full-time work. And when I say full-time, it's probably not full-time 40 hours a week work. How did you feel confident enough to say goodbye to sort of traditional W-2 work life, and let this be your full-time thing? What was the moment? Was it a number? Was it a, a feeling? Talk to us about that.
3: So it was a little bit of all of those things. We had enough cash on hand. They gave us like a couple of years of runway. And that gives you a lot of flexibility when you're like, "Oh, okay, like if we we lived incredibly frugally, I mentioned that part. And so it didn't take that much cash for us to have 2 years of runway. And then we were like, you know, if it if it makes it, then great. If it doesn't, then that's okay. And Emily can speak to how we actually quit our jobs. They gave us another option.
2: My boss or manager, he was very, I guess, understanding because I, you know, said that we were going to go and like be with family (laughs) over in Cyprus. I was able to do a six month leave of absence. And so having that, I guess, security blanket or, you know, like a backup plan that I could always go back to work, you know, if need be, I had six months like of a trial run that we could do. But luckily, you know, we didn't, Need that. Everything, you know, worked out. James had one month of a leave of absence. It uh, it worked out.
3: If we didn't make it a month, then we had made some mistakes along (laughs) the way. So, you guys talked about that couple years of
0: runway. I mean, that's both a a financial safety blanket as well as an emotional safety blanket being like, okay, we could do this even if we completely mess it up. So, talk to us about the numbers. I know we're in the fire community. We like to talk numbers. So, what does a frugal year look for you
3: now or how much do you guys need to live your enjoyable life so people understand what that means? So, (laughs) I think then, honestly, I think we were probably spending less than 20 grand a year and that was because we were house hacking, we had you know, cut so many of our expenses, but now we're probably spending closer to like 40 or 50, depending. And that affords
0: you guys the lifestyle that you're interested in traveling around the world and the homes that you now own pay for that lifestyle. Is that right? That's exactly right. How do you guys split it today with long-term rentals versus short-term rentals and which one are you more interested in?
2: So it's about half and half. So we have five long-term, and then we have five short-term, medium-term. So we have three short-term, which is anywhere from one night to, I guess, 30 days, and then medium-term, which is 30 days to six months. And so we have two medium-term, three short-term, and then five long-term.
0: Business-wise, is one more financially advantageous than the other? Do you make more money with short-term than you do with long-term, but then you get more security with the other? How does that work?
3: That's pretty much the the trade-off. So you make much more money with short-term, but there's more involvement. And then it's also, there's a seasonal factor to it. You know, there's less security in it because you don't know if you're going to have bookings or not. When you sign a lease, typically that person's there for 12 months and they pay every month typically. And so, you know, that's the, that's the biggest trade-off. And again, there's more time involvement. We don't think there's that much time. We probably spend an hour a month managing the long-term rentals. And we probably spend an hour hour a week managing the short-term rentals. So, you know, for the, I guess it's four times as much time, but at the same time, it's like making three or four X. And so you can actually own a lot less properties if you're willing to kind of have the mix.
0: And that really comes with trust in the people that you've built in your network. How often, I mean, are you, I guess re-examining who's in that network or do you just find people that are great and then you both have this great symbiotic relationship but it keeps going how does that work
2: yeah we have found like when we i guess got our you know people contractors whatever they have been we made the right choice when finding them and then they have been really good to us and another part of it is you know we pay them on time and then try to keep you know a good relationship with them
0: as far as the amount of units you guys have or doors, as you guys like to call it, I'm trying to use my real estate lingo. Do you have desires to grow that more than where you are right now? Or are you guys at a good point? How are you making that determination?
2: We are at a good point, although another opportunity has popped up or we are in a contract to buy one more. So we've had 11, I guess two years ago we had 11 doors and then you know we sold a couple, bought a couple kind of thing. And so we're, we have 10 now and then we're about to have 11. So that's kind of our sweet spot.
0: Got it. So I guess James and Emily, as you guys are looking maybe five
3: years in the future, 10 years in the future,
0: what does your real estate business look like in the grand scheme of things for yourselves?
3: I think that it's very similar to what we have now. If the right opportunity pops up, then that's great. But otherwise we we have enough. And so it's really about like flexibility, creativity. There are a couple of projects that I would like to do. And so I would be interested in, you know, but it's again, got to be the right property because we have enough now and there's like there's something to be said about limiting the amount of stress that you have. And so for us right now, it's less about accumulating more and getting more money because we live a very happy lifestyle. And so we're not that interested in that. We're more interested in like a small but mighty portfolio that limits the amount of contacts that we have to have or work that we have to do
0: less worry, more time for enjoying life. So how many hours a week would you guys say that you actually work work on this business? I would probably say less than an hour a week. Less than an hour a week. That's incredible. And how much do you
3: guys make for your online business on an annual basis? So we make between, I would say, 120 to 140 a year, just managing the real estate specifically. So that's just the long-term and short-term real estate.
0: Got it. Okay, so you work an hour a week and you make 100... and 20000 to $140,000
3: a year. That sounds pretty accurate. Just wanted to make yeah. sure I got that right. Yeah. <laughs> the cost per hour is pretty high, you know, the pay per hour. You're highly qualified individuals with a, a lot
0: of experience in developing, this. it's not something that happens right away. I'm sure that you guys experienced that early on with a lot of trial and error, but how many years have you been doing this now? So we
3: bought our first property in 2017. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So six years in, you, you've you earned earned the right to, earn, to make 120 <laughs> to $140,000 through one hour of work per week. Congratulations. That's beautiful. Now let's talk more importantly, let's talk more importantly what you do with those, the other 39 hours per week. What are you guys doing to enjoy your life? And then what plans do you guys have in the future for your best life ever?
2: I think it depends on where we are. You know, if we are home i guess like in in the us alabama florida wherever that may be we prioritize our health so we are exercising going on daily walks and also like the daily walks we have conversations like we talk to each other and it's not one like you know our phones are we're not on our phones we're not you know around technology that kind of thing so we're able to have you know meaningful conversations and that helps quality of life and then if we're traveling no, you good. No, I mean, it's just like if we're traveling, <laughs> we're also kind of doing the same thing, exploring, walking, trying new food, restaurants, that kind of thing.
0: That's incredible. And I understand community is a big part of your lives as well. I mean, having a, a partner to do this with is fantastic, but I understand you guys get together with people around the globe as well as communities and conferences and things like that. Is is that true?
3: Yeah. And that's actually probably the best part about being part of this kind of movement is, you know, there's not a lot of people our age that are able to have the lifestyle that we have. And, you know, just this past year, we met up with like a group of friends. It was like 10 or 12 of us in Mexico. And we've met up with, you know, Cody Berman. I think we've been to like six or seven different countries with him and you know spent months together and that's time that like we couldn't we couldn't do that with our day-to-day friends that we grew up with and stuff like that just because the lifestyle is completely different even our siblings like Mm -hmm. in some ways we have you know much more time spent with some of these people than we do with our own family It's not what we
0: see in the media or what we see out in the world. So this FI lifestyle is something that takes practice to get used to as well. But I really like how you guys have designed your life. And I'm quite inspired today. You know, there's somebody listening right now and they're thinking, okay, well, I would really like that kind of lifestyle. And obviously it comes with the work that you guys have done, both from living frugally as well as building a very profitable business, let's talk about one step they could take following this interview to move towards a life of rental property ownership and also just owning more of their time. What's one thing that they could do following this interview?
3: So I would suggest checking out Bigger Pockets and Coach Carson is another incredible resource. They just have so much information. And it just depends on what you're interested in doing. We prefer small single family and multifamily properties. And we prefer long term rentals and short term rentals. But with real estate, you can do so many different things. There's syndications, there's storage units, there's I mean, just anything you can think of someone's done it or just hard money loans. And so there are a lot of ways to kind of get into real estate, I would suggest looking into those deciding what suits your personality because even though we enjoy it managing properties isn't for everyone but everyone can own properties and so it's kind of a stress level it's a give and take as you're
0: calculating the numbers really on, on deciding what type of rental property you want to have i understand you guys have a resource on your website too can you tell us about that
3: we do. Yeah. So we have a free resource that we give away. And what it is, is a calculator that determines how much money you can make with a long-term rental versus a short-term rental. And it can kind of give you an idea of whether or not it's more profitable or if it's worth your time to convert a property that you already have from a long-term rental to a short-term rental.
0: James and Emily and I have an affiliate partnership with regard to that resource. So if you guys want to check that out at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash rental calculator, that's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash rental calculator. I'm so passionate about their lifestyle that I applaud it and think you guys should check it out as well. So James and Emily, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. If people want to connect with you more outside of that great resource, where should they
3: go? So we're probably most active on Instagram at RethinkTheRatRace, but we also have a website, RethinkTheRatRace.com, and there's a lot of resources on there as well. Excellent.
0: James and Emily, thank you so much for your time and best of luck exploring the world.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
0: a quick reminder, this show is for entertainment purposes only, my friends. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific financial situation. Before we go for the day, I wanted to ask a quick favor of you. If you liked this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or sharing it on social media. The best way for more people to find and consider this show is from recommendations for people who are enjoying it. So I would really appreciate it if you could send a text. To a friend with this episode or another one of your favorite episodes, and tell them why you like it and why they should check it out. That recommendation would mean the world to me. Thank you for considering it. Or just share it on social media and be sure to tag your friend, Andy, at Marriage Kids and Money on Instagram or Facebook or at Andy Hill MKM on Twitter or LinkedIn. I'm looking to grow this show this year and I appreciate your support. Thank you. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with actually two quotes today. The first one is from President Franklin D. Roosevelt regarding the banking crisis on March 12, 1933. You people must have faith. You must not be stampeded by rumors or guesses. Let us unite in banishing fear. We have provided the machinery to restore our financial system. It is up to you to support and make it work. It is your problem no less than it is mine. Together, we cannot fail. And then another one from President Ronald Reagan in 1989. It's still trust, but verify. It's still play, but cut the cards. It's still watch closely and don't be afraid to see what you see. So in short, have faith, but remember to be your own family's best advocate. Carpe diem.